Welcome out, Grace, to, uh, to worship together with our, our brothers and sisters. I'm glad to have you here. I know there's a lot of people that are homesick today and uh, just hearing a lot coming around, going around. I, I just, you know, if you think about, if you've heard of anybody that's sick or whatever, be praying for them. This is a tough time. It may be making its way to different houses and everything, but, um, you know, we, uh, we just want to keep each other lifted up and, uh, and just that God would get, grant us grace in that, but... So uh, today we, you know, we turn our, our study in the book of Luke to maybe uh, the, one of the most famous stories that Jesus ever told, right? Um, it's one of those, it's a familiar story in so many ways. It's a story of redemption, right? Of redeeming and bringing somebody back, the, the kind of the coming back story, right? It's like the ones we see in so many movies we love to go back to over and over, the one person that's redeemed and, and brought back from the low place and, and lifted up. And it's a story of the prodigal son. Uh, you know, which I think is, is a fair enough title. We hear the prodigal son, and prodigal, any, uh, real quick question, anybody know what the word prodigal means? Anybody, if you're being honest, you go, I'm not quite sure. Anybody? We hear that word. Anybody that's not quite sure? We got a room full of liars. Everybody knows what the word prodigal means? Yeah, you don't. Okay. Okay, who doesn't know? Yeah, prodigal means extravagant or almost wasteful in a sense, right? Okay, the prodigal son, the, the extravagant, wasteful son. But I think it's a, a fair enough title, but I feel like the, what it does is, unfortunately, that title puts the focus on the wrong person in the story um, and the wrong player. I think that it puts it on the son as the main player, but I believe the chief player in the story is not the son, but it's actually the father of what's going on in this story, who himself, if you look, is quite extravagant, is he not? Quite wasteful in the eyes of some, uh, might say, that you know, he's prodigal in his own right. Uh, Tim Keller even you know, talks about him being the prodigal God, right? God being the, the almost extravagant, wasteful one. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm actually going to split this up. If you notice, it only went through half the chapter, um, the half of the story. I'm going to split it up kind of in two weeks. Next week, I want to focus on the two sons a little bit. I, but for this week, I want to focus more so on the father. And I want to focus more on the tie, that the, the role that the father has to the two parables that Jesus uses to set up the story uh, before that. But before we get there, you know, one of the most famous uh, pieces of early American Christian literature, uh, some of you may have had to study this in school, probably not so much uh, public school students anymore, we don't really get into it, but uh, it's the, you know, the one of Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Anybody ever read that before? Anybody know what I'm talking about with that? Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And in that, in that sermon, actually, you know, the, the story goes that it drove people crazy. Some people were literally getting up, apparently, and screaming and running out or rolling on the floor uh, you know, for the things that were said. It was a quite scary sermon based on about five words out of Deuteronomy, lest his foot shall fall. And maybe one of the most memorable parts of the sermon is dealing with the image of a spider. Some of you may recognize this, and uh, I'm, I'm going to read this quote. I'll put it up here as well, but imagine, too, if I started preaching to you this way, what would you think? It says this, Jonathan Edwards says this, he's talking about those, you know, who were without God. He says, that the God that holds you over a pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath burns towards you like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. 
You were 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. Now, imagine, again, like I said, imagine that's how we go about preaching to you uh, week after week. But this is one of those, those pictures, I think, that comes out of this time, comes out of the Puritan uh, ideals of a view of God. And, you know, I'll be honest, I'll, I'll be completely honest with you. When I read this, what, and when I read what Jesus tells us about our Heavenly Father, I'll be honest with you, I struggle a bit with this view of God. And that's just one little part of this. I, I struggle with this character, characterization of who God is. as though and He's a God who is perpetually angry at all of his creatures. That it's almost it's the baseline of who God is that because of sin, he is perpetually angry and ready to do nothing but to toss us into the fire or we're hanging from a thread over it. He's ready to wipe us off from the face of the earth unless we're scared enough to hide behind Jesus for protection. And I think often, actually, the, the God of the Bible, the God of Christianity is honestly portrayed just as this. An angry God, as though it is his chief trait. Instead of his primary trait being, as God himself said to Moses on the, on the mountain, when he revealed himself, and the, the verse actually from the Old Testament is quoted more, more times than any other verse in the old, entire Old Testament. When God says about himself, when he reveals his very name to Moses, and he says, this is who I am, Moses, I am that I am, right? I, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, Abounding in loyal love and faithfulness, keeping loyal love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Or as John simply puts it in his, in his, uh, in his writings, God is what? Love. Now I think to be sure, there is a certain place for understanding Okay, don't, don't, don't miss me here. There's a certain place for understanding the reality of what it means to reject God and what that ultimately leads to an inv- individual who chooses to do so. No doubt, absolutely no doubt of what the, the rejection of Yahweh means. But for the moment, I want to I propose to us, what if instead of hearing it and understanding him as being sinners in the hands of an angry God, understanding it as sinners in the hands of a loving God. And let me make my case from this, this, this passage here today. You know, it starts in verses one and two, wherever it, you know, Jesus, it starts out, it says that now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to hear him, him being Jesus. But the Pharisees and experts in the law were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. It starts off, we see this chapter starts off with Jesus eating with who? Sinners and tax collectors, right? And this is not for the first time. This has happened many, many, many times in Luke so far, has it not? And I think Luke puts this story here following after chapter 14 for a reason. If you recall back in chapter 14, the last two weeks, what is it that Jesus has been preaching about? He was sitting first at the beginning of chapter 14 where? At a what? Anybody remember? At a banquet, right? At a banquet, and he's talking about the hospitality of God welcoming in 
those, right, into this banquet. And if you recall, he puts the call out to, his, to the people that are close to him, right? The host does in that story, being the Israelites. And he puts the call out to them. But what was their response whenever it came time for the banquet? I can't come, right? I'm too busy. I've got my priorities elsewhere. I've got, a, I've got this land or I just got married or whatever it may be. Their priorities are elsewhere. And so instead, of the, the table is set, right? The table is there. The food is laid out. The banquet is ready to go and the host is ready to be generous. Instead of letting that go to waste, what does he say to do? Go out, right, to the roads. Go out to the highways and the hedges, Find those who were on the outskirts and bring them in, right? The invited guests don't respond. They're too busy. They counted, as Andrew showed us last week, they counted the cost to follow after Jesus and said what? It's not worth it. So where does the call go? The highways and hedges. The banquet table set. The food is purchased. The host is eager to share his bounty. So what does he do? He goes out and sends his his slave, go out and get those who are on the margins. Go out and get the outcasts who, understandably and rightfully so, they're labeled as what? Sinners. They're they're, They're there by their own doing. They're on the outside. The sinners go get them and those who are in need of redemption. And we see Jesus, what, starting this chapter off after following 14, doing what? Just that. Going to the homes, going out to those who are on the outside and leaving behind, specifically, those who are not willing to join in the, the banquet. He's coming out to the outcasts to eat with him, sharing the bounty of his father, is he not? And it's interesting, if you notice, does anybody, is there anybody actually angry in this section? Who's actually angry in this section? The Pharisees are, right? The religious leaders are the ones who are angry. But why? Let me ask you, why, why is it that the, the religious leaders are angry? What do you think? Maybe they're left out. They're realizing that maybe they're left out. Okay. All the righteousness maybe doesn't, um, it doesn't actually make them better. What else? Maybe they feel like it's unfair that he would be out going out to them, okay? A lot coming from this side of the room. They're looking down upon them, right? Because they feel like they're so much better than they are, right? Oh, they maybe they don't deserve it. Don't deserve what? What's it? Yeah, these people are undeserving of what? The generosity of the Father. Because Jesus is generous and going out to those who don't deserve it, there's anger. There's frustration. There's complaining that's going on. And what Jesus does, he's going to tell three stories to understand something, three parables to share with the truth with the Pharisees. He wants them to understand what? Who the Father is. To understand who Yahweh is because it seems that maybe they've missed the boat along the way. 
They've missed out on who he is. And he goes out, and in the story, he asks them three things. He says, what? First, who is it? You know, he asks them, if, if anyone, if a shepherd had lost his sheep, would he not go after it, right? I mean, if you had a you had 100 sheep and you lose one, you bring them in at night and you realize you've lost one, what would any shepherd do? Of course, they'd do what? They'd go out and get the one. Or if a woman, if she lost one of her dowry coins, what would she do? She would feverishly search the house and sweep in order to find it. Or all the more, a father who, what, loses his son, would he not run to him, forgetting all the shame and leaving all that behind that older men don't run in that society in order to welcome him home? Jesus is telling the Pharisees and telling the religious leaders of the, uh, and those who are following, those who have been following him, this is who my heavenly father is. This is Yahweh, your God. He has lost something precious to him. He has lost his image bearers. And he will do whatever it takes to pursue them and bring them back to him. Why? Because that is who he is. He is a God who is love. He is a God who pursues. And Jesus has come to tell us that this is exactly who he is. And not only is it God pursues, but when he finds them, what will he do? He calls them to what? Let's not miss this. It's not just a God that goes out. He calls them to something. What does he call them to? To those that are found, not to the others. We'll get to them. Close. He says it in two places. He talks about the sheep that he brings back. Aha. Rejoice with me because I have found my sheep that was lost. I tell you, the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. What is it that the son does when he comes to himself and comes back to the father? He repents. When the father has found those who have been lost and he he calls them to repentance, to come back to him, to enjoy the banquet that he has prepared for them. To do what was said of the son in the story, to what? Come to his senses. And when he does, when the son comes to his senses, he says, come to take all of your failures, to take all of your bad attitudes, take all of your false beliefs and all of your selfish ways of life and to simply plunge them into the grace of the Father to the gracious hands of the Father who is standing with his arms wide open to what? Welcome him back from the dead. Oh, to be a repentant sinner in the hands of a loving God. Now, I want to take a moment here. I'm going to stop there for a reason. I want to to jump back into this in a few minutes, but I I want us to pause there And I want us to take some time to jump in this passage. This is one of those familiar passages we look at a lot. So we've got some some questions, and I want you to to gather with some other people. I want you to talk through some of these things. Those are the wrong people. He should not be going to them. So it's not without precedent. I think, honestly, a lot of churches 
over the history of the church have, have had the same issue. We, we are in some ways that we still don't learn the lesson that we think there's the right people and the wrong people, the Republicans and the Democrats, the whatever, you know, like if you believe in this, you can't be a Christian, right? Ooh, if you hold this political belief, you can't be a Christian, right? That never happens, right? That never happens. Right, I mean, you know, if you reach out to these people, then you can't be a Christian. If you, or if you aren't doing these things, then you can't be a true Christian. We do it all the time. We separate out. And what we do is, in, like, I think what happens is a lot of times we end up separating out. I'm going to get into this far more, but next week. But you think about, it, well, again, going all the way back to Leviticus, what's the point of the holiness aspect of the temple? Is to do what? To take those who are on outside and what? Bring them into the presence, right? To be in the presence of God. God providing over and over a way to be back into the presence that was lost, that was kicked out in, in chapter 3 of Genesis, but constantly showing ways to being brought back into the Eden land, being brought back together. God over and over pursuing. But what happens is, you think about, what happens is over and over, there's those that are in the holy crowd, the I am holy. But what does Jesus say about the holy ones that are on the in crowd? He calls them whitewashed tombs. You look great on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. You clean the outside of the cup, but the inside is dirty, right? He talks over and over about this idea, you've gotten it wrong. You have made holiness, you have made righteousness a thing to do what? Not to bring people in, but to do what? Keep people out. That's the problem. They have found, they have perfected a way of keeping people out of the presence of God. We're going to see it next time in the older brother who has the exact same problem of a brother that there is no way he should be allowed back in this home. And we'll understand more why next week, right? But that's not how God works. That is not how he, he does things, right? God is not a God of keeping out. He is a God of bringing in. Now, notice with me, I want you to finish with this. I want you to count with me the mentions of something. There's one, there's a, there's an idea that's repeated over and over and over through these three stories. Anybody catch it? What idea is repeated over and over? Repent's repeated twice, but there's something that beats that one. Lost and found, there's a few of those. There's something that repeats those, or that, that goes more than that. All right, wait, what? Rejoicing. Verse 5. When he has found it, he places it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Verse 6. Returning home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, telling them, rejoice with me, right? Because I have found my sheep that was lost. Verse 7. I tell you in the same way there will be more joy, joy in heaven, right? There's rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who have no need to repent. There's joy in heaven. All right, what about verse 9? She finds the coin. She's found it. She calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me for I have found the coin that I've lost. Verse 10, In the same way I tell you there is joy. Now this was interesting. In the Greek, actually, I, I believe... like says, joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. We, I think we often hear this as, who's, who's doing the rejoicing in heaven? The angels. 
Actually, I don't think that's the case at all. There's rejoicing. The way the Greek hits here is there is rejoicing in the presence of angels. Surrounded by the heavenly court, there's rejoicing. Who's doing the rejoicing? God the Father, the Trinitarian God, is rejoicing in the presence. Who's rejoicing? He is. See this? Verse 23. When the, bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. Verse 24, because the son of mine was dead and alive again, he was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. How many times? Seven times over and over in this passage, there is a celebration, there is rejoicing. And the writer even uses four different words to say this. What kind of God is Yahweh? What, kind, what is Jesus coming to be God with us show us about him? That he is a God who would do whatever it takes to find us. To bring us back into fellowship with him. That he will be a, a God who will lavish the riches of his grace upon us just as the Father did to the Son who returned. And he will rejoice along with his heavenly court, when one of his image bearers is found. That is the God that we worship in the Bible. That is a God that we should be totally about telling the world about. Not starting off with this idea of, this is an angry God who is ready to, to come at you, and unless you repent, you're going, he is sending you to hell. Why do we start with hell and then move to the love of God? I don't get it. I don't get it when I read the, the scriptures. I don't see it. We should start with the love of God because that is who he is at his core being. And we share that love. We share the lavishness of his riches, of his grace, of his mercy, of his long suffering, all the things that he says about himself. And we invite people into that. I have found life. I have found it abundantly in Jesus. You don't know what you're missing. You're missing out on the love of God. I want you to know all about this God because he is searching for you. He is coming out for you and he has sent me to be the one to bring you home, amen? Church, do we reflect this? Are we seeking out the lost? Are we bringing the love of our Heavenly Father to them? Why? So that they might see the beauty of Jesus. The one who gave everything so that you and I and that others might be found. And when found that they might repent, they might turn from a life that's walking from God, walking to destruction, walking to a separation and something that will never bring life, but darkness and death and despair and repenting and turning back to come into the very presence of the one who has created them to be in his presence forever and find life and find it abundant so that they too can be rejoiced over. Amen? Let us be about the joy of pursuit, just like our Father in heaven. Let's pray.